My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. It's progress at the cost of entertainment. This is the 17th episode of the history of film, filmed art. Hello and welcome back to the history of film. Some of you might be thinking, this episode is about film to art, I thought episode 17 was supposed to be about animation. The answer is yes, it was supposed to be. I use lots of different books when doing research for this show, and unfortunately most of my general film histories tend to give most of their attention to live action films. I don't fault these writers, after all, the majority of films are live action, but researching from these sources led me to have an inaccurately compressed vision of the history of animation. Using more specific sources for research revealed that, of course, the early days of animation are filled with rich advancements, artistic and technological achievement, and are very complex. Getting from the beginning of animated film to American animator Windsor McKay and his famous cartoon Gertie the Dinosaur will likely take about three episodes. So, I decided to postpone our episodes about the history of world animation until after we cover the goings-on in the French and Italian film industries, which had such an important impact on worldwide cinematic development. We referenced this from the perspective of the United States in episode 15. And here we begin, with a group of people looking to elevate cinema from the crass entertainment of the poor to a high-class, high-brow art form that the French middle class could afford to be seen attending. Cinema, as you know, had a bit of a rough-and-tumble reputation in its early days, and its subjects were often considered unrefined. To quote one film history written less than 20 years after the end of the Nickelodeon era, quote, The Nickelodeons were scarcely recognized by adults of the well-to-do classes, either as a form of entertainment or as a means of making money. Stayed citizens, and their wives, ignored the store shows, or regarded them as undignified or foolish. While in reality there was more nuance to this, as we explored in episode 14a, the general sentiment was true. As far as the more wealthy and educated were concerned, cinema was largely for the rabble. As one would expect, there were forces that would come to gentrify the motion picture, and one of them was a man named Paul Lafitte. I would love to tell you all about the early life of Paul Lafitte, but unfortunately, I can't find too much about him. He's part of an enormous group of people who are often name-dropped in English-language texts on film history, but are rarely discussed with any degree of depth. Even open internet sources in French yield very little. Granted, I don't understand them. So, I will tell you what I can find, which in this case comes from the always dubious source of Wikipedia, made even more undesirable by virtue of it being a draft article filtered into English from a translation app. Paul Lafitte was born on the 24th of October, 1864, in Philadelphia. He must have moved to France, he might have been related to a financier, and he may have written a column on theater for a newspaper. That's it. 
I was able to find records of his birth and death, but I'm telling you the guy is a ghost. The only thing I can find out for sure about him is his relationship to the film movement that would garner Lafitte his name drop in various film history books. In the early 1900s, Lafitte decided he would spearhead an effort to make movies more respectable, and he would call that effort filmed art. We know from previous episodes that there were already some efforts to provide some social elevation to the new medium of cinema. For example, we have already seen the Pate and Guermont produced multi-reel films on the life of Christ, which used detailed sets and large casts to achieve these ends. But the methods Lafitte employed would be more and less than this. Filmed art was based on a pretty simple principle. Bring world-famous French theater to the public by recording the most famous French actors performing well-known plays. Filmed art would spare no effort in their mission hiring top-notch composers to score their movies, the best stage directors, and actors from both the Académie Française and the Comédie Française to set their films a cut above all others. Film de Art would import the French stage star system wholesale. Paul Lafitte and Film de Art would succeed in their mission. Their first film, The Assassination of the Duke of Guise, would be a huge hit. The Assassination of the Duke of Guise was a 1908 film directed by Charles de Bargui and André Clements, stage directors at the Comédie Française. The plot follows the titular Duke, who is warned of the vicious King Henry III's evil intentions, but goes to the King's council chambers despite the protestations of his wife. The King sets a trap for the Duke, selecting dozens of men to lie in wait and murder him. The Duke's corpse is taken into another room, where it is observed, and a cross is placed on the body. The assassination of the Duke of Guise consists entirely of long shots, showing the whole of each actor's body at all times. Prosimium framing was used for the whole film. It was shot entirely on sets, using no location shots. Any cuts amount to a change of background, and they only occur at a scene change when a character leaves a room. The film lasts 15 minutes. As I said before, this film was made in 1908. It came out years after the work of George Albert Smith, Robert Paul, Georges Méliès, and Edwin S. Porter. So, what gives? Why was there no variation in shot, location, or editing technique? Well, film to art was limited by its ambitions. The entire point of the movement was to bring great plays in all of their aspects to the screen. So, that's exactly what they did. Film plays. The problems with this are many. For one thing, they get kind of boring. Don't get me wrong, the assassination of the Duke of Guise is about as good as many other early films, though this was less true by 1908, but it lacked any spirit of experimentation, and it has little visual flair beyond its costumes. It doesn't ask the audience to do much of anything using the technique of visual language that had been developing in cinema, and tries to import the often dialogue-based art of stage theater with as little adaptation as possible. With so little innovation, film to art was destined to be a flash in the cinematic pan. But not yet. When the assassination of the Duke of Guise premiered, people loved it. A reporter for the New York Dramatic Mirror wrote, Its superior quality and photographic excellence, superb acting, 
rich settings and costumes, and skillful dramatic handling of a carefully constructed picture narrative distinguishes it as one of the masterpieces of motion picture production. And a journalist in France claimed that the film matched the first showing of the Lumiere Brothers' cinematograph in importance. All of this praise can seem a little odd in 2021. As David Shipman wrote succinctly in his book, The Story of Cinema, none of the merits of the assassination of the Duke of Guise so praised by reporters of the day remain readily apparent to modern audiences. But at the time, Film to Art gave permission, in effect, for the upper rings of society to condescend to go to the movies, and even become movie fans. With the success of the assassination of the Duke of Guise, other Film to Art movies were inevitable. In addition to the Society of the Film to Art, founded by Paul Lafitte, continuing to produce movies themselves, Companies across Europe and the United States sprung up to produce films in the same vein as those made by the Society of the Film to Art. Soon, movie screens would be filled with stagey adaptations of famous novels, ancient tragedies, historical episodes, film ballets, voiceless operas, and then-current high-class theater, all of which came to bear as their generic title, Film to Art. As David A. Cook derisively puts it, Film to art swept across Western Europe, stifling experimentation and enshrouding the new medium of film in the literary orthodoxies of the past century. For a while, it seemed as if everything written, sung, or danced in Western Europe from the Renaissance to 1900 found its way into these stage-bound and pretentious productions. Ouch. Even though pretty much all modern film history writers mostly describe the film-to-art movies themselves for their faults, the influence of the movement is never denied. The very nature of the source material that the art filmmakers were adapting naturally led them to make longer movies, which was a major factor in the widespread popularity of the feature film. D'Art's emphasis on using only famous stage performers and directors would prefigure the star system, and perhaps even help create it. U.S. producer Adolf Zukor's Famous Players Company was so inspired by film to art that the slogan of the business proclaimed it would bring audiences famous players in famous plays, and no doubt sprung from the overwhelming success of film to art features in the United States. There are other ways that film to art impacted the history of film, but before we get there, I would like to stop and talk about the film to art movie that made Zukor's company initially successful. As we described in episode 15, that movie was the 1912 film Les Amours de la Reine Elizabeth, or, in English, The Loves of Queen Elizabeth. The Loves of Queen Elizabeth, starring legendary French actress Sarah Bernhardt, is a dramatic film based on the life of Queen Elizabeth I of England, with creative liberties taken of course. The story follows Queen Elizabeth and her lover, the Earl of Essex, who is framed for treachery and eventually executed through the machinations of evil courtiers. When Elizabeth learns that she was tricked into executing her lover, she dies a mournful death, all happiness being removed from her life. Each scene of the movie is preceded by a title card that describes what is happening next in the story. This movie is important for a couple of reasons. Obviously, because of the effect it would have on the United States film industry, but also because it's representative of the successes and failures of the art movies more generally. First, its successes. The Loves of Queen Elizabeth is watchable. The story is comprehensible. 
In episode 13, we talked about Edwin S. Porter's adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which also took famous source material and adapted it to a series of short scenes preceded by title cards. Uncle Tom's Cabin is incomprehensible to people who are not already familiar with the story it is telling. That is not the case with The Loves of Queen Elizabeth. It really isn't a fair comparison because of the incredible nine-year difference between their release dates, but it does suggest that the art filmmakers did understand something about how to make a story on film, even if they didn't know how to best express a story using film. Admittedly, that isn't too hard when you're pretty much just recording a play, but it is something. The scene where the Queen watches the Earl of Essex get taken away by guards employs something like deep-focus photography, and uses the architecture of the set to create a frame within the shot. It was probably my favorite scene in the movie because there was so much visual interest. Also, the movie begins with medium shots to build the actors and starring roles of the film, and I counted a single slight pan in the movie. This proves that the D'Art filmmakers could choose different shots and move the camera, they simply chose not to, which might be worse than never doing it. Now for the faults of The Loves of Queen Elizabeth, which are many, its 50-minute runtime can feel a bit longer because the film can get a bit boring. Because of the basic premise of the film to art movement, putting plays on screen, characters stand still and talk a lot like an actor might in a play. This doesn't give the audience much to pay attention to, particularly because the shots don't change and the camera doesn't move. Well, except for that one time and even then barely. While there are titles before each screen to explain what's happening in the film, there are never intertitles to explain what the characters are actually saying, which would be fine if their acting made up for that, but it often doesn't. With no close-ups, we can't get a good look at the actors' faces, which is usually one of the most important features of silent film, and its absence is really felt here. The actors, trained for the stage, make very large gestures which is important when a person on stage has to make their emotions visible to people at the back of large auditoriums. But when projected in large and fancy theaters like the art films were, this just looks silly. A 20-foot-tall person doesn't need to do all of that gesturing, and as these films prove, shouldn't do it. The overemphasized actions that so many people imagine in early movies look especially silly from these prestige pictures. All of these faults are highlighted when you consider that this movie came out in 1912, two years after one of my favorite Max Linder shorts, Max Takes a Bath, which effectively uses close-ups, creative camera placement, title cards, and very effective pantomime. And it came out nine years after people like Edwin S. Porter were beginning to develop the concepts of parallel editing and the shot. It's no wonder, then, that so many writers talk about film-to-art as an unfortunate detour, or worse, a step backward in the development of cinematic technique. Still, it sold like hotcakes, so most people clearly didn't care all that much at the time. Cook, who I seem to reference all the time, suggests that d'art film's greatest influence was showing the great filmmakers on the horizon what not to do. According to him, it inspired filmmakers like D.W. Griffith, who we will keep dancing around for a little while longer, and Louis Fouillard, who we will talk about next week, to seek out and help develop a uniquely cinematic language. And we can see how artistically it was a dead end because of how quickly it was replaced. As movies began to get their own world-famous actors with the rise of the film star system, 
and their own prestigious stories told using all of the developments of cinematic language we've talked about so far, the very purpose of film to art would cease to exist, eclipsed simply by film itself. Film acting would develop a style distinct from stage acting, and film history would roll on. Our old friend Pathé, emperor of film in France, would create a film to art company in opposition to the Society of Film to Art founded by Lafitte. Even though they were rivals, Pathé would distribute the Society's films internationally while competing with them domestically. Eventually, Pathé would crush them, as emperors are wont to do. Soon after, there would be no place in cinema for the stagey meanderings that were filmed to art, which would be quickly replaced and then more or less forgotten. Though short-lived and artistically uninspiring, the film-to-art movement would leave a lasting legacy on the film industry. It would help introduce the idea of the star system, bring movies to the upper classes in ritzy and expensive venues, make the idea of cinema more opulent, and introduce much of Europe and the United States to the feature film, which is its most important contribution. It would not be the only film movement to do so, however, as over in Italy there were filmmakers making their own high-budget historical dramas. Those also would rock the world film industry to its core and change it irrecoverably. But it won't do so next week. I figure we're already in Paris, so we might as well stay here. So in episode 18, we'll connect back up with our old friend the Galmont Company and see how his new star director, Louis Fouillard, was keeping audiences on the edge of their seats. Again, and again, and again. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The History of Film. My favorite general information that didn't make it into the show today is about Sarah Bernhardt, whose name I'm not even going to try to say in French, who had an amazing career. She owned her own theater, which she named after herself, played Hamlet in Hamlet, toured all over the world, and became famous in film as an older woman, which is historically extremely unusual. She is a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and a very, very long Wikipedia article. She's not going to get her own bonus episode or anything, but you should look her up if you ever have the chance, because she has a fascinating life. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. I always love receiving your emails. And you can visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, to see resources for each episode. If you'd like to help the show grow, I would really appreciate it, and there are a couple of great ways you can do that. The first is telling your friends about it, and the second is leaving a review wherever you listen. Thank you for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film. <laughs>